So if you're able, please stand together for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would take this word, that you would do more than we could ask or imagine with it. We pray that you would convict us. We pray that you would comfort us. We pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son. We trust your word, your promise that you don't allow your word to return void, that it accomplishes all that you intend. We ask that you would do that now, this morning, in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. Journaling. Does anybody journal? Yeah. Have you ever given journaling a shot? I, I have. It's kind of short-lived. And I, just, I try. I try to do it. Many of you do. I've heard you talk about it. It's something that lots of folks commit to as part of their New Year's resolution. Ha! I didn't do it last week, but I'm doing it this week. New Year, a new you. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. I could, okay, I know. Show me the door. All the, yes. Or... Well, okay. It can be actually a beneficial practice. I mean, really, there's been lots of research, you know, done on potential benefits of just journaling, of just writing stuff. And it's been going on for a long time. It's not just a modern person's kind of thing, right? You just have to think, for instance, of Augustine's confessions, right? Puritans were real big on journaling. As you capture your daily thoughts, your feelings, your desires, your struggles, your triumphs, your failures, and all the rest, as you do that, you have an opportunity to see yourself, you, kind of like in a mirror. 
over time you see the habits and the patterns that you would otherwise not be aware of. Because it's easy for us to think more highly of ourselves than is true, right? I mean, really, that's why some of us don't write down the stuff that we eat. <laughs> because we'd rather go, well, I, I, I eat pretty good. Well, you can't hide when you're, when you're really writing it. You're recording those things. Some use journaling prompts to give some direction to this work. Well, I got one to offer you. If you're doing this, you know, part of the new year, here's one. Real quick, simple question Where are you going? Where are you going? I mean, I kind of deliberately select that because. If my sources are correct, journal and journey have more than just the first five words or, or letters in common. They really have a common root. The French, journey. I don't know if that's the way you say it. That's my shot. If you're French, I'm sorry for, for doing that. I mean, a journey has the idea, connotes this, this idea of daily activity, daily work. A journal records the daily kind of idea. I mean, in fact, actually, you know, the uh, way it was used, 14th century, it was connected to this idea of these daily prayers, daily prayer service. Hmm, appropriate, maybe. If you use that question as a lens to record your daily experience, how would it organize, how would it shape your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, your struggles, your failures, and all the rest? What kinds of habits and patterns would emerge as you asked yourself that question? And if we found your journal... Years after you left this earth, how would we answer that question about you? Where was he going? Where did she go? I think we get some idea of what that might look like as we read Psalm 84. Because in Psalm 84, you get the feel very much like you're reading an entry in a psalmist's journal. And in his journal, he's talking about his journey. He's going somewhere. And where he was going shaped his entire existence. We might sum up that existence, right? his expressions that he offers here, as expressions of hunger and hope. That'll be sort of the guiding phrase, maybe, that will carry us through this psalm. His hunger and his hope. Let's look first at verses 1 through 4. Here we see how that hunger and hope, how it directed the psalmist. 
It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. There's this progression of intimacy that you see. I mean, this, this psalm hits the ground running. This progression moves from the dwelling place to the whole tabernacle, the courts, within the, in themselves, and to the living God. The movement gradle, gradually gets more intimate. And along with this progression of space leading to intimacy, we see his response building. The psalmist gets to this point where he's almost unable to restrain his, his praise. What he's recording is his anticipation. Anticipation of visiting the place where God dwells. And that causes an overflow of emotion in the psalmist. The prospect of worshiping his God reaches in and pulls out of this individual this response. Like, think about the way that his soul longs, his heart, flesh, they cry out, they scream out for this God that he's looking forward to. That is to say, everything that he is, everything in him, all that he is, strives towards this one object. Get this sense. Viscerally, he is trembling, quaking, in anticipation of seeing this God. He trembles and he quakes, with hunger. What does he want? He wants communion. This one in whom he finds his greatest delight, he wants to be with him. And you can see the intensity of his expression in this odd little thing that he says about birds. Did that strike you as odd? That he would Note the birds that have built nests in the rafters, in the tabernacle, the temple. You got these cheap, worthless birds that otherwise we might not take any notice of. But this punctuates things because it is these cheap, worthless birds building their nests that don't know of anything, he envies them because they are always there in that place where God dwells. He envies the priests and the Levites, those who serve singing to this God. He knows that they have true blessing as long as they serve there. The psalmist cannot wait to be near this God to whom he belongs. We could say that he 
loves God and that is expressed in his appetite for God. He hungers. Can you imagine what he would say about you? Can you imagine the awe with which he would hold you in? You. He would say, my goodness, you, right? The living God dwell, didn't dwell, doesn't dwell anymore in tents. He doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells in you. Mind-blowing. That's amazing. And you... He would say, you, you, just you, you're priests. That's the way the New Testament talks about you. You're always there. He's right there. How can you contain yourselves? What an appetite you must have. What longing, what hungering, what thirsting, what trembling, what quaking you must have. That's what he was after. But we also see that this was no picnic. That hunger and hope, it directed him. But that hunger and hope also sustained him. Listen to verses 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. As folks move toward God's dwelling place, it's not an easy road. That's captured in that little phrase, the Valley of Baca, or Valley of Weeping. This arid desert places. It connotes affliction and hardship. They move through great difficulties. This could stand as a serious obstacle to the psalmist. They could get bogged down in the midst of difficulty. They could say, never mind, it's too hard, I can't go any further. But what happens? What does the psalmist say? They make those places springs. Those arid places are covered with pools. What do those descriptions mean? The contrast. Valley of weeping. And pools. You can imagine springs and pools, water, they would enable life. Sustains the people in an arid place. Not just sustains them. That makes it a place where they could thrive. Right? Thriving in an unlikely place. That's what happened to these pilgrims on the way. But we could ask this, in all that metaphor, what is he saying sustained them? Look again at verse 5. Where is their strength? Where, what is in their heart? Firmly implanted in their heart is the place where they're going. They aren't there yet. They're not there yet. But by faith, they know the one that they are after, they will find there. By faith, 
They know that their God, the living God, will meet them. And it's their delight in this God that strengthens them. He sustains them. He makes them to flourish in the midst of affliction. But we can put some skin on this. Who is this God that they're talking about? It's in a name. You see the name in verse 1, verse 3, verse 8, verse 12. What's the name? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the ruler. And with that, that name, key ideas, and you would see this in the whole, whole flow of the Psalms, but key ideas come together in that name. Creation, earth, history, heaven, temple, sovereign rule and power. The Lord of hosts is Yahweh. He's enthroned over the, over the ark that was in the temple. And because of that, the temple forms the very center of the universe for these Israelites, for these people. Yahweh rules by his power. He reigns over all creation. He is sovereign over all history. In the ancient Near East, around that time, they believed that their gods defeated enemies. Chaos. And when chaos was defeated, then that God entered into his temple palace to rule over all things. But guess what? In Israel's story, Yahweh said, nope. No. That's reserved for me. I am the only one who is sovereign over chaos. I am the only one who rules over all creation. Nope, no other God, just me. We also see the vision uh, in the way that the psalmist describes God in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, For the God, excuse me, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What is the good thing? What is it? He gives life. He gives protection through his covenant faithfulness. And in that way, he displays his glory. So that we could say about the psalmist, his hunger and hope are driven by the beauty of this sovereign king rules over all and delights to do good for his people. The psalmist knows his king. He knows that his king is a good shepherd king, one who nurtures his people, one who grows them, one who rules, protects, and provides. That is what sustains this psalmist along the way. This is what he savors in his heart. This is the one in whom he trusts. And so he walks by faith to see. No wonder he ends the psalm as he does. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper 
in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Well, this hunger and this hope to get these in safety, to get that, it requires that something happen. And here we see where his hunger and his hope is dependent, dependent on the Lord. Verses 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. And then here's nine in particular. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Who is he talking about? Right? The way that that's couched, it's very easy just to run past it. But who is the psalmist talking about? Who is he asking God to listen to? Who is he asking God to show favor to? The king. The king. Let that sit for a minute. The experience of pilgrimage, the certainty of going on this journey to this place where the temple was, hinged on the king. Why? Because the king was God's representative. He ruled in the stead of the divine king. His responsibility was to protect the people, to make provision for the people, to ensure the temple worship went as it should. He needed God's favor on their king. Otherwise, all would be lost. And we might add this. As the king goes, so the people go. If he goes bad, the people go bad, and then comes judgment. What I just summarized is the Israel that his, that, that, uh, the history that Israel, in fact, experienced. When their kings went off the rails and didn't do their job, guess what happened, kids? <laughs> Culminating... Ultimately, in the loss of the very place where God dwelled, the temple, they were carried away. And this is why temple sort of factors in so much when we get to the New Testament. Do you see how this pilgrimage that the psalmist is on parallels yours as the people of God. Were you able to intuit some of the connections? Well, I can say this, and I'll tell you how I make that jump. It's in answer to the question, where is God's dwelling place now? There's been a shift in the drama that retells the story of Psalm 84 in a very different way. John 1, 14. Remember says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John deliberately ties Christ to Israel's temple history. 
God dwelt in a tabernacle, tents of animal skins, and then a temple of stone, gold, and silver. That's where God was. True enough. But not anymore. Not then and not now. Now he tabernacles in flesh in his son. Still resurrected Christ. Further, when Jesus cleanses the temple, right? Remember when he was asked for justification, you know, how can you do this? What does he say? You destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. They all thought he was talking about the temple, and he wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about his temple, him, he. This is what he was saying. I am the temple. Carson says this, D.A. Carson, Christ is the manifestation of God to man, the abode of the living God on earth. Everything temple meant was fulfilled in him. So Christ is the center of all true worship, and in him we come to the dwelling place of God. So that's his first little tweak, because in a sense, we could say this, in a sense... Our pilgrimage is different in this way. We're there. We have come to the dwelling place of God. It's a done deal. How can you say that? Because if you're a people of God, you are in Christ. In Christ. Let that settle in on you. You are there in Christ. But there's another sense in which we can talk about the temple. The temple is us. The temple, the New Testament doesn't so often speak of you as we. It does you at times, but most of the time it's we. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Paul says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, listen to this, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul can talk in a universal sense of Jews and Gentiles as the temple. He can also talk in a local sense. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? In a real sense, there's a real sense in which you and I are on pilgrimage every week. Why would I say that? Because in a real sense, it is the living God that meets with you here as you gather. God meets with us. He speaks with us. He feeds his people. In a real sense, you and I are on pilgrimage to get here. Really? Why else would you come? 
please, please tell me that you don't come just to get information. Please. I mean, you've got to, you've got to see that. That there is something real that is happening here that draws us together. I mean, it's not because I didn't come here at the top of my list because I like you. Right? I mean, I do like you, but but you're you're not the reason. That's not, that's not enough of a bond to keep us together. Please don't hang it on that. And this isn't something, I want to say this, this isn't something, and I, this is the, you know, I have my, my little hobby horses that I like to just kind of clang away at. I know. We all do. But you get something here that you don't get in your prayer closet. It's not the same. It's not the same. He calls us together for worship for a reason. Because it's here that he's promised to meet with you. He's promised to do that. And it's not about you sort of, you know, getting, getting ready throughout the week, well, although that's kind of helpful, but getting ready throughout the week so you can really present yourself, right? Because that could be a real disaster. No, God calls you the disaster to come here and meet with him so he can speak to you, so he can feed you, so he can change you. there's more we are also like the psalmist in this that we look forward to a future time that we do not yet see past back then God stretched out his tent over wood with Christ he stretched out his tent over muscle and bone then then Whenever that is, he'll stretch out his tent over the whole cosmos. All creation will be his temple, his abode, his dwelling place with us. And here's the final place where we connect with this psalmist. It's with the king. We say with him, Behold our shield, O God. Please look on the face of your anointed. You know why? Because if God doesn't look on the face of his anointed Christ, we're lost. We're lost. We've got nothing. There's no reason to come here. It's certainly no reason to look ahead, to look there wherever there is. 
Christ our King protects us. Nothing can touch us in Christ as Christ makes provision for us. He gives us his body and his blood. And there's no chance of our Savior, our anointed, Christ, our King, falling out of favor with our God, his Father. His righteousness stands. So let me ask you, where are you going? Where are you going? My hope is that you are going to God. We have our certainty that we will come to the dwelling place of God. It's firm. Because of Christ, he will meet with us here. Because of Christ, we can know he will dwell with us there. And because of Christ, he is with us at all times and in all the places in between. Where are you going? Let's pray.